Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing this morning? We're, uh, we're in the book of Daniel. Um, and uh, I want to encourage, I want to encourage you. Um, we're actually only going to, in this series, uh, go through chapter 6 of Daniel, and I'll tell you a little bit why, but I want to encourage, as we go through a series on books of the Bible, for you to read, and, and in your time alone with the Lord, or in your community, just as we're preaching through it on Sundays, you know, uh, get really familiar, and, and dig into the, to the story uh, on your own, and not have Sunday mornings be the only time that you actually uh, listen and hear. Um, I'm going to begin this morning, as we, as we talk about Daniel, uh, something that I read that, that deeply resonated with me, uh, and it is this thought. The church that I grew up in, the church that I grew up in taught me about the dangers of sex, but they never taught me about the dangers of power. Let me say that again because this struck me. The church, maybe, maybe you could relate because you grew up in this too. The church that I grew up in taught me about the dangers of sex, but they never taught me or the group that I was a part of about the dangers of sex, uh, dangers of power. I want you to think about, I want you to think about the world that we live in because Daniel is about how do you live distinctly biblical lives as followers of Jesus in this culture in our world. Think about the world that we live in. And I want you to think about what misuse of power. I want you and me to think about this morning, church, about how misuse of power by politicians, yes, by religious leaders, by pastors, misuse of powers by CEOs of companies, misuse of power by our parents, by our family members. I want you to think about how the misuse of power has wreaked havoc in our culture today. I want you to think about the world that we live in and how so many, so many of our systemic issues, I want you to think about so many of our systemic issues from recently of, of sexual abuse and exploitation to racism and, and violence and social and economic injustice. And I want you to think about the systemic issues in our culture today and I want you to ask this question. Are they, do they have more to do with individual piety or do they have more to do with power? And the destructive misuse of power. And maybe, 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 and, and, and you've heard me preach this long enough, in no way do I want to minimize biblical sex ethic. And I, I, wanna, I will continue to preach on it with boldness, and I'm not going to shy away from that. But I want you and me to think about this morning that maybe in our culture today, how you and I as Christians utilize whatever power we have. And if you're sitting there going, I don't have any power, you're fooling yourself. How will you me to think about how power that we have in form of money and education and network and resources, some of us are race. Think about the power that you have. And I want you to think about how we're utilizing power and what that means for our culture today. Could it be that in John 13, when Jesus 
washes the feet of his disciples, and John begins that chapter with these words, and God put all things under his power. Think about this. All things under his power. The night before he used to be crucified, all things under his power. And when Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and washes the feet of his disciples, he's not just teaching us about servanthood. He's teaching us about what you and I are to do with power. And he says, if you're a kingdom follower, you don't use power, whatever power you have for yourself to lord it over others or to advance you. You use it to serve, to leverage it for the weak. You've heard this quote before. It's by Walter Brueggemann. When he says the righteous, and this is an entirety of the Old Testament, when you actually study the word righteous and just, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, and the wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And this isn't someone else out there. I want you to think about you and go, whatever advantage I have, whatever power I have, whatever, how am I using it? How am I leveraging it? And could it be that, that that is where our world is desperately longing for? That's what our desperately is longing for. Christian, how are you leveraging? How am I leveraging power that we have in the form of money and education and resources and network and our race and privilege that we have? Is your approach and attitude towards power any different from that of the world? Bluntly asked, are you using whatever power you have for your kingdom of one? Are you using it for the kingdom of God? Are you using it for the kingdom of one or the kingdom of God? Are you leveraging whatever power that you have? And could it be that what we do with that says a whole lot more about our faith than drinking and smoking and dancing, living distinctly Christian lives? I hope you come in to realize as we study the Daniel in a secular, pluralistic, relativistic world like ours, it's not just about asking, can Christians drink and smoke? But can I, in our church, nobody asks me that. And it might not be because nobody's wondering. People don't ask me, Pastor Peter, I want to be a good Christian. Can I drink? Can I smoke? Can I dance? Can I watch Game of Thrones? People don't ask me those kinds of questions. You know what people ask me? I'll tell you what people ask me. People ask me questions like this. I'm an actor. What roles can I take? And what roles can I not? People ask me questions like this. There was a woman who used to attend our church. Not anymore, she's moved on. She was a non-Christian working at a strip club putting makeup for the girls. Then she became a Christian. And she says, I am the only witness in that place for Jesus. Can I stay or do I have to leave? Or I'm talking to this guy who makes half a million dollars. Okay? And he gives away like $100,000 a year. And he says, my clients say the most racist, vile things <laughs> to my face. This fellow is white, by the way. He says, Pastor Peter, should I speak up? Because if I do, I might lose him as clients. And I might even lose my job. What do I do? are the questions that people are asking. And fundamentally, those questions have to do with what? Can we please stop asking questions like, what are the rules? What are the rules in the Bible? Many of those questions you and I wrestle with what it means to be a distinctly Christian in this culture don't have specific rules. 
And you and I grew up in culture where there aren't specific rules. I'm just going to make them up. I'm going to make them up. And I'm going to say, Jesus cares about these rules. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. We make them up and we wind up hurting other people. I want you to ask this thing because here's what it means to be a fundamental Christian. I hope you come in and realize this. Being a, being a Christian, being a Christian in a distinctly Christian way in our culture is asking questions like, what is my foundation? What's my anchor? Those are the questions. Who's my king? Who's my Lord? What do I worship? Where's my identity? Where's my significance? Those are the questions that ground and anchor you and me. These are the questions we need to wrestle with of what it means to be a distinct Christian. Can I just say this? Ninety-five percent of the time, the best way to defend absolute truth in a culture of relativism, 95% of the time, the best way to defend absolute truth, live it. Live it. When your friends and my coworkers go, your truth, that's your truth. My truth is my truth. Whoever in that culture, the best way to defend it, don't argue with them. Live your life in such a way that you say, I answer to a higher authority. Do you hear me? Live your life that says, I don't get to make up whatever. I answer to higher moral authority. What do you think it means to worship the one true God? We sing about it. One true God, one true God. You think it's to go out there and argue, argue with people about the way to defend your belief in the one true God is you and I live in a sea where people worship false, lifeless idols of money, materialism, greed. Live your life in a way that says, Jesus is my king. Live it. I was talking to a guy who attends our church, who's wrestling with his faith. You know what he said to me? It's the most honest, vulnerable thing, powerful. He said, Pastor Peter, you know what I struggle with? You know how Christians talk about Jesus is enough for me? He's like, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I've never seen a Christian live their life in a way it said, Jesus is enough for me. Are you tracking with me this morning? Live it. God is love. Live it. Live it. Live a life of radical, sacrificial love. Very few people have been argued into the kingdom. Many have been loved into the kingdom. Come on, come on. The book of Daniel is so relevant. Are you living it? Am I living it? Can people see, can people see that there is one true God? Can people see that there is truth and absolute truth? Can people see God is off. Oh. So as we work through the book of Daniel, Daniel is exilic literature. It's written to a group of people that are in exile. And we've covered chapter one and chapter two, long chapter. I covered half of it. Here's what happens in chapter two, beginning, and we'll come back to this. Nebuchadnezzar, the, 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 the king, the most powerful man in the known world, overruling ruling the most powerful kingdom, Babylonian Empire, has a recurring nightmare. He's haunted by it. He can't sleep. And it's a recurring nightmare. And he calls out his advisors and wise men to, to, to do two things. One is tell him what the dream is to make sure that it's supernatural revelation and then interpret it. 
Nobody can. So he puts out basically uh, an edict that says, if you can't tell me what the dream is interpreted, you're all going to die. Everybody's freaking out. The chief official, of course, meets Daniel. And Daniel says, I can interpret it for you. He goes, prays. He receives the dream from God and the interpretation. And where we're going to pick up right here in chapter 2 is he is now standing before the king. Here we go. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. Probably felt good about himself. Verse, keep going. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. Daniel says, but, uh, but, but, but check this out. But God made you ruler over them all. Uh, the, the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Uh, God has made you rule. The only reason why you're here is because God intended it so. See, this would matter to the exiles. Because the exiles are asking, where's God? The exiles are asking, has evil triumph over good? The exiles are asking, just like you and me, does he care? Does he know? And they needed to know that the God who covenanted to love them to the end is the same God who's in charge of the exile and the same God who's in charge of this evil king. Does anybody need this reminder today? Have you watched the news lately? Does anybody need a reminder today that regardless of who is on the throne, regardless of that our God, sovereign God who is wise and loving is in charge of history? There's like two people for his good news too. And here's the question that I want to ask you. Do you live your life in such a way that you actually believe this? Is there poise in you? When everybody's freaking out, is there calm? Is there steadiness? What does your life say? Does your life say a sovereign, wise God? is in control. Live it. Live it. Keep going. You're the head of gold, verse 39. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Verse 40, finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. 
And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not, will, will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Ah, there's a lot there. Christians have traditionally interpreted this passage this way. And a lot of ink has been spilled. <laughs> Most Christians have traditionally said the medals represent earthly kingdoms in history. So the gold, king, the gold kingdom represented the Babylonian Empire. Then the silver kingdom represented the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which came right after that. Then the bronze kingdom represented the Greek Empire. And the iron represented the Roman Empire. And all these kingdoms came in succession like Daniel said they would. And they all fell apart like Daniel said they would. So this is tra traditional Christian tradition. So if you could just figure out when though, in those times, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. If we could just figure out when in those times, the God of kingdom will set up a kingdom. If we just figure that out, then we'll know when Jesus is is coming back. Help us, Lord. I, 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 like in a minute, I just capture what traditional interpretation is. And let me tell you quick two reasons why I think that interpretation is weak. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's weak. One, the author doesn't tell you specifically what those kingdoms are. The author specifically doesn't tell you what those kingdoms or those medals represent. So we're left with speculation which is not helpful. This is the danger of being preoccupied. Give me like one minute to get on a soapbox, okay? This is the danger of being preoccupied with end time prophecies. Can I get a name? No, nobody. It's, it's I, I, you know, I grew up, I mean, I grew up and part of my culture was this obsession with end times and when is Jesus coming back and all this stuff and that he is coming back and I can't look, I can't wait until he comes back. But the problem is how certain and sure people seem to be when it comes to predicting the end times. It's almost like they read the book of Revelation and they, they write it like they had lunch with Apostle John and gained insight. I think John's sometimes up there and all the stuff that's been written about Revelation going, really, I didn't know that. That's, that's, that's pretty insightful. I don't think it's helpful, you guys, to be obsessed with end times. And I'm just going to say this, not everybody. It seems like there's an obsession with end times that causes some folks to neglect the world that we live in now. It seems like preoccupation with the world to come somehow causes some people to neglect the world that's here. And I'll tell you in a bit why, why that mentality is so contrary to scripture. But the second reason why I think that traditional interpretation is wrong is this. In the dream, all the kingdoms come down all at what? Once. These kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, that existed centuries apart by the smashing of the rock, we'll see that come down all at once. So what is the meaning of the dream? And why is it important for you and me? Two reasons. One, 
Let me tell you about the cosmic ramifications. Cosmic ramifications. What do I mean? The kingdom in the dream doesn't represent historical earthly kingdoms or empires, but what the Bible calls the kingdom of man. Or what Paul talks about in Colossians when he says, you've been delivered from the kingdom of what? Darkness into the kingdom of light. It's the kingdom or the world that you and I inhabit after Genesis 3. It's the kingdom where man lives in hostile rebellion against creator God and tries at every point to usurp him as God. It's the kingdom of sin, Satan, and decay. It's the kingdom that you and I live in. The kingdom of man is characterized, and some of this will look familiar to you because we talked about during the summer, the alienation rings. The kingdom of man or darkness represented by spiritual alienation. The kingdom of man or darkness is the world in which we live in hostile rebellion against God and neither worship him as God or thank him. It's one in which we try and be gods of our own lives or we give our lives and we bow down to false lifeless idols. But that's not the only thing. Spiritual alienation then leads to what? Psychological alienation. What do I mean? When we don't know who God is, we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. And the result of psychological alienation is being cut off from ourselves where there's anxiety, there's fear, there's insecurity. That's not the only thing, though. Spiritual alienation leads to psychological alienation, psychological alienation that leads to sociological alienation. When we're cut off from God, we're cut off from ourselves, we're cut off from each other. And our relationship with each other is characterized by greed and racism and war and injustice. But it's not the end of it. Lastly, there's physical alienation where Romans 8 says the whole of creation groans for the day of redemption. There's death, there's sickness, there's decay. The kingdom of man, the kingdom of darkness. Now, you guys, if this resonates with you and this is good news, say something. Because into this kingdom of darkness, kingdom of man, what does God do? Verse 44, Daniel 2. Did you catch that? In time. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. Here's the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is not. God looked at fallen creation, the kingdom of man, kingdom of darkness, and said, you all messed up, so I'm going to obliterate it and start over. What does he do? He says, I'm going to usher in a plan to fix that, to restore that, to renew that, to renew every aspect of my beautiful fallen creation and centuries later a dude walks on the planet earth and he comes and he says the following words in Mark what does he say Mark chapter 15 the time has come he said the kingdom of God is near so repent and believe the good news Daniel chapter 2 is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ is this good news to anybody? Jesus Christ comes and says, I am going to usher in a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Usher in a kingdom that will endure forever. And the good news of the gospel 
is not that we get saved and go to heaven, but that the kingdom and the rule and reign of God is here to restore everything that went awry because of sin. The kingdom of God is the supernatural. I put up a definition. The kingdom of God is a supernatural, presence of God, supernatural ruling power entered into human history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to bring about the healing of all aspects of sin. Is this the gospel that you believe? The kingdom of God is here. Thank God, Jesus. Ah! Did you catch, by the way? Did you catch the, 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 the thing that symbolized the kingdom of God? This is so powerful. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? What's the, what's the metaphor that symbolizes the kingdom of God? The rock. The rock. I have to personally admit, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't prepare this sermon without image of Dwayne Johnson in my head. I, I, just, I just have to admit, okay? <laughs> this, I, so many, rock the rock the rock. I just, and that was stupid and lame, but I'm just confessing. But did you notice, did you notice why and what the rock represents? This is so powerful. First of all, first of all, the rock is not cut out with human hands. The kingdom is not human ingenuity and human thinking. It's supernatural revelation. It's completely supernatural thing. Secondly, the rock is the least valuable substance. Do you notice that in the kingdom? There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze, and there's iron. But then there's rock or the stone, which means, please listen, in the eyes of the, in the, eyes of the world or the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God is always going to seem less valuable, less honorable, and weak. The kingdom of God will always be the opposite of what the world values, what the world lifts up, what the world thinks is important, and what the world rewards. The ways of the kingdom of God will always seem upside down, right side up. In the kingdom of God, you see defeat, uh, you see victory coming out of defeat, you see strength coming out of weakness, and you see life coming out of what? Death. That means that if you are living lives in the kingdom, listen, you will be misunderstood. If you are living life in the kingdom, if you and I are citizens of the kingdom, we will be misunderstood. People will look at you and mean go, why do you do that? Why do you not go there? What is up with that? Why do you care about that? Why do you not care about that? You and I will seem a bit strange. You and I will seem a bit weird. And some of you know what this is like because you know that in your workplace, when you live your life as a follower of Jesus, it means going against everything that the world values. And they'll say, what's wrong with you? Can I ask you something? When is the last time somebody came up to you and said, what's wrong with you? Not because you're a jerk, by the way. Because if you get persecuted for being a jerk, that's on you, not on Jesus that's not on Jesus, on you. But if you live your way of the kingdom, you say, that's not important to me. That's not valuable to me. I don't go after that. I don't find life in that. They will say, what is wrong with you? And third and most important, the rock grows. <laughs> the rock grows. There's this huge statue 
But it's not a huge mountain that smashes, that smashes that you, you see that. It's a small rock that grows and grows and grows and grows and fills the whole earth. Do you remember Jesus said something about that? Matthew 13. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The kingdom of God is a growing thing. It's a gradual thing. It doesn't come in one swoop and wipe out all evil. It came the first time when Jesus came in weakness and in service. And he didn't eradicate all evil and sin. But man, he is coming back. But man, he is coming back. I don't know when, and frankly, I don't care. But he is coming back. When he comes back, he's going to come in total power, and he is going to make all things new. Oh, I'm so grateful that that resonates with you. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know how I can live in this world without holding these two things in tension. That is, that the kingdom of God is already, but the kingdom of God is not yet. The kingdom of God is already. Here's what that means. That means you and I should expect, you and I should expect to see powerful changes in our culture, in our society, in our own personal lives. Christians and kingdom people are not pessimistic and cynical. We are the most hopeful people because we know that the kingdom of God has entered human history. There are things that God can do that we just marvel and say, God, that's all you. Here's what that means, you guys. That means there's no sin that can't be overcome. There is no sin. There's no addiction. There are no personal failings that can't be overcome in the name of Jesus. It also means that real change is possible in our world today. And the reason why that's important is this. Kingdom people realize that we are not saved so that we could just be informed about the kingdom, but so that we could participate in the work of the kingdom. You and I aren't saved so we could just be the audience and viewers of things that God is up to. God says, no, I give you a mission to participate along with me in the work of the kingdom. Do you know why? Do you know why? I'm constantly up here saying cultural engagement in culture, medicine, law, arts, media, politics, education. Why all these things matter? Because the kingdom says when he comes to restore things, he's going to restore everything. That's why we as a church don't just say discipleship and evangelism. Those are basic. But I want to tell you this morning that if you're an artist creating art that reflects the glory of God, it's kingdom work. Working for social and societal transformation, working for community development, that's kingdom work. Teachers teaching the mind, the potential of children, that's kingdom work. And yes, feeding the homeless, clothing the naked is kingdom work utilizing your medical skills to heal your patients is kingdom work. All of those are kingdom work because all of it matters in the eyes of God. But remember that the kingdom is not yet. This side of heaven, we're not going to see all the effects of sin totally eradicated here and now. Here's what that means, Christian. Listen to me. That means if you're a Christian, you don't spout pat answers. 
That means as a Christian, you don't look at yourself and look at others and be impatient. Do you hear me? Some of you need to hear this. You don't become impatient with yourself or others. The kingdom is not yet. So Christians in this world are the most unique distinct. Why? Because on one hand, you're the most realistic. You're not naive. You're not pie in the sky. We live in a world of suffering, evil, injustice, and death. Your feet are firmly planted in the world. But you're the most optimistic, hopeful, and engaged in our culture. The kingdom of God is already. The kingdom of God is not yet. Is this you? Is this me? Personal ramifications. I said this a thousand times last week. The danger of the story is you and me thinking that it's about somebody else's story when it's not about me. Can I say that again? The danger of the story is you really go, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, that's, you know who. Or Nebuchadnezzar, the story is about who, guys? It's you, it's me. Why is Nebuchadnezzar freaking out? Why is it that he's troubled? Why is it that he can't sleep? Everybody, can you look up here for a second? I need to talk to you. Nebuchadnezzar came to the city of Babylon with a dream. He comes to the city of Babylon with a dream to create a dazzling image of himself. A statue is how he wants the world to see him, how he wants the world to view him. This gigantic, imposing figure made of gold. Why are you here? Why did you come to the city? See, don't think the size of it. Don't think, I'm not that wealthy, I'm not that. No, no, no. I want to ask you something. Please be honest. Why did you come to the city? Why are you here? Is it to build his kingdom or your kingdom of one? I'm not going to let you get away with this. Listen to me. Don't, don't, don't just wiggle away. Listen to me. Listen to me. Don't think. Hey, somebody else. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you in Chicago? But I don't have any money. Not the issue. I don't have power. Not the issue. Why are you here? Giving lip service to I'm about the kingdom of God. Are you really? I want God's will to be done. Do you really? You and I are bombarded every single day with the mentality. Protect yourself, preserve yourself, promote yourself, serve yourself, take care of yourself. And into this kingdom mentality, Jesus comes and says, slay yourself. Die to yourself. You're telling me that that message that you hear every single day, kingdom, it's about you. Promote yourself. It's about, you're telling me that you are immune to this and saying, it doesn't bother me. Why are you here? Why did you come? Let me put it this way. Whose dazzling image are you trying to create? Do you know why Nebuchadnezzar is haunted? Do you know why you can't sleep? I can't sleep. Do you know why there's anxiety? Do you know why there's such deep sense of, oh, discontentment? Do you know why? Because you and I are trying to erect a dazzling statue of ourselves, say, I am somebody. Will somebody notice me? Will somebody like me? Will somebody please say I'm okay? But you and I know whatever that is, it's made of feet of clay. 
Anything. I mean, anything can come. And now you do. Why are you here? Why am I here? Whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you about? Oh. If you build your entire life on money, you're going to be scarred by the market. If you build your entire life on your looks, you're going to be scarred by the mirror. If you build your entire life on morality, you're going to be scarred by sin. Can I just say 30 seconds? Some of you, you built your entire life on, I'm a good Christian, I'm a good person, and then you did something that you never thought you would do, and that blew you apart. Why? Your entire identity is, I'm a good person. I don't do bad things. What happens if that's your identity and you do? Some of you, if you build your life on acceptance, you're going to be scarred by rejection. Some of you, if you build your entire life on your children, you're going to be scarred by their failure. You guys, some of you are children. You're the product of your parents doing this to you. Your parents built their entire life on you. And now you're turning around and doing the same thing. Whatever it is that you and I are looking to build our life on, it has the feet of clay. And if it's not God, it's fragile and weak. And God says, look at me. And God says, for your sake, because I love you, for your sake, because I love you, I'm going to bring it down. For your sake, because I love you, God says, I'm going to bring it down because building your entire life, how many more of these stories do I have to hear? How many more of these stories will I continue to hear where somebody walks into my office or coffee shop and says, I built my entire life on fill the blank and it crumbled, Pastor Peter, and now I'm thinking about just walking away from the whole thing. What are you building your life on? Can I, Confession? Last week, 9 o'clock service, I was preaching this. And some of you noticed I was visibly shaken. Maybe you didn't know that because I was yelling and screaming. Because as I was preaching, listen, I knew this in the back of my, as I was preaching, it's like the Holy Spirit spoke and said, you are Nebuchadnezzar. You are Nebuchadnezzar. And I was like, what are you talking about? Lord, so I had to process it. Do you know? Do you know? I'm going to be real vulnerable and honest. If this, make, if this offends you and causes you to leave the church, I'm going to take a risk. I, for years, have carried this mentality. I am better than other pastors because look at this hard multi-ethnic church that I pastor. And I still struggle with this sense of deep self-righteousness like I am better than other people because look how hard this is. And you are hard, by the way. Look how hard this is. Look how difficult this is. And I have this, this chip on the thing. You know, when I go to places and people go, oh, you do that multi-ethnic thing. It's so hard. And I'm like, no, not really. But deep inside I'm going, yeah, it's hard. And I'm better than you. And God came last week, 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock. I almost couldn't preach at 9 o'clock. And God said, you are Nebuchadnezzar. You are Nebuchadnezzar. You're building your life on this. You're doing this multi-ethnic church thing. And Peter, that sucker is going to crumble. Your life. Why 
Are you here? Why am I here? And here's the thing. This isn't just about you and me. That's the crazy part, right? You're sitting on personal ramifications. Let me tell you why this is so important. Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. If you are here to create a dazzling image yourself through your financial success, how the heck are you going to be radically generous? How the heck are you going to be radically generous when your identity is built on that? How the heck will you speak truth to power when your entire identity is built on, I want people to like me? How can you, in other words, work for the peace and prosperity of the city when you are completely consumed with building your kingdom of one? Unless you and I are set free from building our kingdom of one, unless you and I are set free from building our lives on status, money, success, morality, I'm helping, good Lord, I'm helping people. Those of you out there, self-righteous because you're helping people, join the club, man. That is the least loving thing you can do. To use people in the name of helping people so you can feel better about yourself. How can you and I Work for the justice, love, and peace of our city when we're so busy trying to, how do you do that? How do I do that? We can't. How do you get set free? How do I get set free? How do we finally become freed from building lifeless, dazzling image of ourselves so that we could serve the kingdom? The apostle Peter, who was writing to exiles in Roman Empire Central Theater, says this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone. Kevin, you can come on up. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a Zion in stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Thank you, Jesus. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. Peter is saying something that you and I, Christian or not, just fundamentally know. That is, every single one of us this morning, we're building our lives on something. Every single one of us this morning, I don't care who you are, you and I are building our lives on something, some cornerstone. Listen to me. Do you know why the first commandment and ten commandments says, you will have no other gods before me? Do you know why it says that? No other gods before me? Because Bible assumes that if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping something else. Don't kid yourself. There's no such thing as a non-worshipper in here. There's no such thing as oh, I don't. You are building your life on something or someone. If it's not Jesus, it's something someone else. And in case you're still sort of like, I don't, I don't know what that is, Peter. Am I building my, I'll tell you what that is. Your true cornerstone is when you get up in the mirror or get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and it's the thing that makes you go, see, now that's why I'm okay. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a good parent. I help people. I make all this money. I work for justice. It's the thing that 
causes you to go, because of that, I'm okay. And every single one of us in here has something that you're doing that with. And the thing is, you and I know it's not sustainable. Come on, guys. This isn't even like a hard argument to make. You and I know it's fragile. It's weak here today and gone tomorrow. We know this. We know this. We know this. And yet we continue to build our lives on that. I see a bunch of students here this morning. If your entire identity is on, I get good grades, I'm smart, I go to a good school, the day of reckoning is coming. And the only way you and I will be freed to love our city is to make Jesus our cornerstone and find him precious. Can I tell you what the difference between believing in Jesus and finding him precious? When Jesus is precious to you, everything else in your life becomes expendable. When Jesus, listen to me, if Jesus is truly precious to you, everything else, your career, your job, your children, everything else says, take it or leave it. When Jesus is precious to you, everything else, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You could have all this world. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. That's what it means to find him precious. Give me Jesus. You could have all this world. Give me Jesus. Do you know why I preach the way I do every week? Do you know why I always end on this? I'll tell you why. Because there's some of you that walked in here this morning every week. And here's the thing. You've been building your life on something and it's blowing up in your life. Listen to me. It's blowing up. When you walk in with that thing blowing up and you hear the gospel that says he's your only sure foundation and the Holy Spirit makes that truth come alive in you, that's what's called gospel wakefulness. Some of you, when I talk about the gospel, you look at me like, what? You know why? Your life has not been blown up. You're still building your life on that. So no matter how much you hear it, it's somebody else not me but if you walked in here this morning you've been building your life another cornerstone and it's falling apart and this morning you say I need Jesus that's why I preach what I do every week because somebody's walking in here and their foundation is crumbling so no altar call like come on up this is your chance whoever you are your own way where you are to go rigorously honest Peter my cornerstone is falling apart I can't fake it anymore I need him to be precious not just precious Holy Spirit my prayer is for that brother and that sister before we take communion my, my, my prayer right now is for that brother and that sister. Holy Spirit, take this truth that they know in their head. Take this truth that they know in their heads to be true, that you are the only sure foundation. There is none other that that truth that they know in their heads have heard for years and years and years that as their foundation is blowing up, as their foundation is falling apart, that they would hear your gentle voice this morning that says, come to me, all 
who are weary and worn out and find your rest. Find your rest. Just a deep in me. That invitation has always been there. Christian, that invitation is there for you, those of you that might not consider yourself a Christian. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. And you can have all this world, but give, give me Jesus. And the night that he was betrayed, Susie, please come out. He took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me.